This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Engineering Project Management Podcast. And this is a podcast that's dedicated to helping project managers to sharpen their project management skills. I'm going to be your host. My name is Matt Douglas. And in this episode of the Engineering Project Management Podcast, I'm going to be speaking with Keith Kesner. Now, Keith is a project director at SGH, and we're going to be talking today about the intersection of project management and the field of existing structures. And now that's going to be including the challenges, the trends, and the future directions of repair and rehabilitation practices within the next five to 10 years. And with that, let's jump right into today's episode. All right, everyone, it's time for our PM Conversation of the Week with Keith Kessner. Keith, welcome to the Engineering Project Management Podcast. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to ask you about your insights on your daily responsibilities and how project management plays a role in your work that you do today, who Keith Kessner actually is and what you do in your profession. I'm a Product director at Simpson Conference and Hager, SGH. And I joined SGH back in March of this year. And I've been involved with groundly working in repair and rehabilitation of existing structures for about 30 years now, with some time spent in grad school. And my current title is project director. And in that position, I'm pretty much doing everything on a project from client and business development to working on field investigations, plans and specifications, quality reviews on projects, and seeing work through construction. Project management and you know, kind of the area of project management touches on just about all that I do, every sort of aspect of what I'm involved with. And it's kind of one of the nice things about SGH that it's a 700 person firm, but we're all working in much smaller groups. I'm in associated with the New York office of SGH, but I'm also working to develop projects in the Philadelphia area. And as I said, we're kind of working in much smaller groups, but on a weekly basis, we're kind of bringing things together and trying to make sure that everybody inside of our larger group is busy trying to manage staff development. And then Obviously, on you know the client side of project management, we're working to a actively develop new clients and then keep the existing clients that we have happy. A lot of that involves reaching out as much as we can, learning as much as we can about the clients and understanding their needs and making sure that our project solutions are responsive to those needs. And then on the other kind of side of it is sort of the internal project management, the staff development. As much as we can with younger staff or all staff, we want to get them a diverse 
experience on different types of projects. The, you know, our group in New York, we do new design. We have park and structural evaluations. We have repair projects. And with our internally in New York, we're trying to make sure that everybody's getting a diverse experience in the first couple of years, which, you know, maybe from a pure management perspective makes things a little bit more complicated because we're, instead of just putting one person in an area and letting them stay there, we want to keep things moving. But ideally, we're trying to get a staff that's you know, trained in different areas and over time can really figure out where they want to specialize. So that's a little bit of what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis from a project manager's perspective. How did you get your background in there? How did exactly did you get to that point where now you have 30 years of experience working with existing structures? You know, as an undergraduate, I was working for a custom home builder in uh, Fairfield County, Connecticut, and taking courses in civil engineering. And I really, at that point, as an undergraduate, you think I really wanted to go into that heavy construction that looked like a cool area. You know, and unfortunately, going into fall winter break of my senior year, I called the guy up. I said, do you have any work from you over, you know, December, January? And he said, no. So I kind of didn't have a job in that break. Well, luckily, I was taking a final exam and the professor said, if anybody's interested in an internship, call this guy. He's in South Norwalk, which wasn't far from where I was living at the time. So I called him up and he was an engineer and is an engineering firm that specialized really in the area of existing structures and non-destructive testing, corrosion evaluations. And it's kind of been 30 years since then. It's been an interesting, diverse group of projects, a lot of different types of things. And it's really the range of products that you get into is really what's kept it interesting over the years. And from some contacts with that firm was how I first met my master's advisor at Cornell, Dr. Mary Sansaloni. And, you know, ended up with the opportunity to go to Cornell or graduate school, which was great. But it really was just kind of a random thing where I didn't have a job. So I took a phone call, somebody else, and it's been a great ride since then. I also liked uh, what you said about getting an internship. And I definitely uh, was on that same track in my career as well. Um, I started off with internships with some Fortune 500 company, civil engineering firms, some much smaller ones uh, at the same exact time. So just getting that vast amount of experience, I think that internships are just one of the best ways that we can actually get into the field. And on top of that, you kind of have to have that in this day and age. I mean, now there's just so many different opportunities for internships in general for engineering students to really take advantage of getting ahead of the game in your career. And another thing I believe to be true is that, you know, even though you have an internship as an engineering student, it doesn't necessarily set your concrete path. It it doesn't mean that you're going to stay within that one path. It's just really about getting the experience, getting your name out there, developing your LinkedIn profile or, you know, whatever your professional experience is going to be and whatever that's going to encompass. And, you know, just getting a head start. I mean, a step forward is just a step in the right direction, right? You mentioned something really interesting there. You said you went to work with Fortune 500 firms, larger engineering firms, smaller engineering firms. And I think that's one of the great things that people don't quite understand maybe about an engineering education. Ideally, in an engineering education, you're learning how to think about things and solve problems. And that mindset where you're learning the science and you're learning how things work, but you're also learning how to specifically 
approach a problem and develop solutions to problems because that's really what engineering is all about. It's applying the science. But that mindset goes into so many different things where I was teaching a course at Cornell after I finished up my PhD. This is a graduate course in structural design. And one of the students, he came up and says, I'm not sure I want to be a structural designer. And I told him at the time, I said, look, one of the things you have to realize is that there's this field that we're in, it's so diverse. There's real estate aspects of it. There's obviously purely project management, purely construction management. And then, you know, you talk about a lot, you hear a lot about this and, you know, it's not the path that I chose. A lot of engineering students, because of the math background that they have, were able to go to work for finance companies. And again, it's using that, it's applying the techniques, the mathematical and the physical techniques that they learned about to solve different types of problems. So if you think about it, it's really a very diverse training that we get as in, especially as civil engineers, because I think civil engineers more than some of the other people, we're sort of more the people persons as engineers. And there's so many areas that you can go into with background in engineering. The internships are a great way to get exposed to it in different companies. There are internships, conferences, meetings, and things that you need to really get a grasp of before you get into the field because now more than ever, the trajectory of maybe half of the people that get into the engineering field, half of them are probably going to end up aspiring to be or becoming a project manager. And client relationships is a major component of that. I mean, if you don't have that, then you're just not going to be a successful project manager, period. Stakeholder management, resource management, and just knowing how to communicate and talk to people in general, I think are just major components of that. And you really get exposed to that industry a lot quicker when you take advantage of those extra curricular opportunities, such as internships, like you've mentioned before. Now, I want to ask you about project management in general, right? So from a project management perspective, what are some of the common drivers for undertaking repairs and rehabilitation in existing structures? Phrasing it as a project management perspective is a little bit different than I typically think about the problem. But I think the biggest driver for all of these things is maybe not project, but program management. It's widened that out a little bit. So think about it as trying to avoid interruptions to the use of facilities and sharing smooth operations. And let's just take a simple structure. It's a parking garage that's adjacent to a commercial building. There's a couple aspects to it. Obviously, from a legal point of view, the owner has to maintain it in a safe condition. That's fine. We all know that. But if you start to see spalling on the surface, you start to see damage to the joints, leaking, things like that, there's two things that really happen. You start to get the negative impression of the facility from a user perspective. And there's a recognition that from an owner, if I fix this problem in a timely manner, and maybe it's more of a maintenance problem, it doesn't ever become a facility shutdown. So it's, you know, from a program management perspective, it's keeping the squeaky wheel well greased so we don't have a problem. It's keeping the structure in operation, and maybe we're doing limited shutdown to do repairs versus a complete shutdown for a more extensive repair or you know a rebuild type project. The other project management or program management, there's a lot of things now that are starting and it's going to change in recent years. A lot more things are being, we'll call it ordinance driven. New York City has a parking structure inspection ordinance, a facade inspection ordinance. 
other facilities have facade and inspection ordinances. So satisfying those requirements, again, it's maybe not project management, but program management requirements are some of the main drivers for you know, undertaking repairs and rehabilitation projects. In all of our projects, we can definitely see them as programs sometimes, like unless it's just something that's just a you know, super small project. But on those larger scale projects that you're talking about here, there are so many different components, as you've also stated. I mean, like the legal side, which I definitely agree with. I'm pretty sure that the ordinances and the legalities of those situations that you're dealing with can probably take some time. Of course, there's also the stakeholder management portion, which we've already mentioned as well. But then also the repair side and getting with the contractors to do the work, the inspections. I definitely agree that it's, it's more so of a program, and, you know, as opposed to just being a simple and small project. So the other part of it is obviously taking the time for the finances. If you're, you know, obviously a stakeholder, nothing's cheap, but closing the structure down short term, long term, there are significant financial implications on that, depending upon the type of structure and the type of work that needs to be done. So that's another piece of the, the puzzle that needs to get worked in there and balanced on the, by the, both the design team and the stakeholders. So what changes have you seen in your career with existing structures? And I might have a little bit to add into this with my own background as well. So I'll let you go ahead and I'll probably say what I can see as changes as well. I think the big change that we're seeing is the recognition, and you're seeing it in multiple professional organizations, that existing structures really are in a unique area. Every structure, we're going to say it gets built in accordance with building code requirements at the time of construction. But all of those building code requirements, whether it's you know fire, egress, life safety codes, all those things are changing over time. And now we have other ideally being improved with each version, but then we have all these existing structures that are both aging and then they weren't built to the latest, greatest building code. And there's no general requirement. It's cost prohibitive. It's not needed for those to be changed, but we do recognize that those existing structures need to be treated in a unique manner. And there's a lot of structures that are, we're going to call them historic, and that's another term those are treated differently than an existing structure. So I think that change that I'm seeing is that we're thinking about these existing structures as unique and development of specific requirements related to those types of structures as to when they may need to be repaired, the types of repairs that need to be completed. That's been a big change. You know, for a lot of years, ACI is really, as American Concrete Institute is really focused on ACI 318 as their primary document for design of new structures. But now in recent years, we've developed a lot of documents at the codes and standards level for specifically geared towards existing structures and some of those areas. So I think that's been a major change over the last you know 30 years. I think another major change that's going to be happening in the very, very near future is the implementation of AI technology into your field. My background was in public works. We were just now starting to see the shift into getting to some AI technologies in the realm of asset management, which is kind of in a way something that you're getting yourself into, right? Like you're managing a parking garage, for example, right? Let's go back to that example. That's an asset and the asset or the, the people that it serves are the people that are parking in the garage, right? 
And there's a certain value that's attached to that. What happens is now like the artificial intelligence space is now starting to infiltrate into the civil engineering space. We're starting to see that there are new methods of surveying that are coming out now. There are new methods of determining the damage that could be happening in a garage, like for like a particular spall, right? I remember that we were actually implementing like new roadway surveying technologies with the previous city that I was working with. And with that, we actually had like these vehicles that were driven by man, of course, but the machinery that was used inside of it was actually using some AI technology to be able to measure how big a spall actually was, how large a crack actually was like, you know, seeing and estimating from there with that damage that you see on the top, how far that crack could actually have ventured into the subsurface. And it's so interesting because with that, you get estimates. You can actually project and see how much it's going to cost when it's supposed to be repaired in the future. And you can come up with an asset management plan so you can plan for future financial planning. I think it's just so interesting how that is coming into our space now. And I'm pretty sure that that's going to be touching all industries very, very soon. That's a tremendous change that's going to be happening. It's, it's happening now. And you're right. We're really on the edge of seeing it. And there's so many things that you can do. It's it's really is. It's big data. When we're able to survey a structure, maybe we're going to survey it with, maybe we're going to determine the exact position of the existing structure using a LIDAR survey. And then maybe we use a drone to try and access some areas that we can't physically climb into or it'd be very difficult to access. And there's a couple things that you can do with that. You can plan, you can use that drone, identify certain aspects, locations where you really, really want to get your hands on it. You can use the drone for that. And then that allows you to get much more focused on your investigation so you can get into that area where you're seeing from the drone some type of damage. Alternately, once you have that data, you can start to think about ways in which you can start to say, okay, I have this crack. I can physically measure something like the chloride content, salt content inside of the concrete. And I can do some other measurements where maybe I can find out that reinforcing steel is actively corroded. Well, that starts to give you the potential to start predicting what's going to happen. And as you said, where that spa is going to be in a couple of years or, or how it may progress and what's the impact on eventually the capacity of the structure. And it's really that sort of that service life and big data and the ability to use that is going to be really advanced a profession. We completed a project at a university's football stadium. And one of the things that was done in that project is we embedded a lot of corrosion sensors plus some relative humidity and temperature sensors inside the repaired structure. And we're using that data and we'll use that data to predict when the coating system may wear out and how our corrosion protection system is working. So really that ability to both plan for and capture and then use big data is really going to change. Ideally, it'll prove the way we manage these assets and allow for you know much greater use of resources. That'll be a major shift. Very important, very needed. I think that it will make our jobs on both sides easier and harder at the same exact time. So easier and harder, but it's also more efficient. But let's be honest, some of this stuff's just plain fun. We're looking at things that we've never been able to, we could have done 20 years ago. Going out and field measuring a structure by hand, it's boring. I mean, we're bringing all the technology we can to these problems and we're making it more fun. So I think that's great.
Yeah, and also eliminating the possibility of human error. Now, obviously, there are going to be some that happen along the way, but you can reduce it down one to two percent. That's a major difference in hundreds of thousands of dollars on certain repairs. We hear a lot about sustainability. Keeping st existing structures in good service is sustainability. And by not having to take structures out of service, not having to tear them down, that's doing a lot to preserve resources. And this is just giving us new tools to do it. You had said something about ACI, and that's the American Concrete Institute, right? So I know that there are some new documents that are coming out on the ACI side. So how do you think that that's going to affect the way that your projects are managed in this field? A lot of the new documents, and I've been involved with development of several of them, they're focused on different aspects of existing structures. And ideally what we're doing is all these changes, we're trying to prove engineering practice, improving the safety, expected durability of existing structures. I'm not sure how they're going to change the management of existing projects. But the one thing I think they will do was provide a little bit more flexibility to design professionals in terms of how we can approach existing projects to allow us to use some different materials. A lot of things like FRP materials, glass fiber bars, all of those will have greater use now that they've been developed and you know the codes are being developed specifically for using in them. So that allows us to change how we can design both new structures and, and repair. One of the more bigger ones that I think is changing is maybe this starting to see a lot more interested in design build approach to some projects on existing structures compared to a traditional design build. In the next 10 years, I think that may be a bigger change than maybe some of the ACI codes and standards in terms of how things are managed, not in terms of how the projects are executed, but specifically how they're managed. Where you see your industry going within like the next five to 10 years. I and mean, I mean, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but did you peer a little bit more into that? Like, where do you see this practice of repair and rehabilitation going in the next 10 years? And what do you think are the main challenges that you're going to experience with that change? We will see more design build type repair project. I think that's a trend that's occurring in the industry. And there's obviously some project management risk associated with that, that we're going to need to work out from a contract's point of view, from a owner risk point of view, just because of the amount of uncertainty that we have in existing structures. So five to 10 years in the area of existing structures, we have a lot of existing structures that just like me, I'm getting old, they're getting old too. And I think Surfside was a real wake-up call to that something terrible could possibly happen to an existing structure that I didn't think a lot of people were thinking about. We have a lot of structures in a coastal environment that have been exposed to significant coastal environments. So that's chlorides, high temperatures, potentially a very corrosive environment for a long time. Some of those structures are in poor condition, and I think we need to really step back and think about how we're surveying those assets and understanding what's going on with the condition of those structures. A lot of those structures were obviously built with older building codes. They may not have all of the features of a modern building code with respect to crack control, resistance to progressive failures. So those are things that we need to think about and understand 
how those structures are going to perform as they get older and continue to age and what sort of strategies maybe have. And then we're going to continue to see, like we just talked about, all of these new technologies, they're going to give us a greater ability to look at these older structures and ideally figure out ways to keep them in service. So those are some of the challenges. The other thing we need to do with that is make sure, as we talked about earlier, ordinances with respect to existing structures. We need to continue to work on the development. I think those are very important in terms of forcing engineers and forcing owners to look at their structure in a critical manner and make decisions about how they are being managed. And then ideally from the project management, the program management, whatever we want to call it, start to think about how we can maintain and financially plan for the repairs or maintenance that's going to be required to keep these things in service. What excites you about this field of structural engineering? There's a couple things that have always been super interesting. If you go out, you get the opportunity to really look at history. You think about a structure, and I'm going to mention one that I worked on, which was Franklin Field. It's about 100 years old right now, the main structure. In 1932, Franklin Roosevelt, he accepted the Democratic nomination for presidency at Franklin Field. So you think back, it's obviously it's not the same field, but you're out there in the structure. That's where he was. So that's kind of cool. You look back, you're working on a structure where actual history occurred, and you're trying to keep it in service. You're trying to figure out what went on. You look at different things every day when you're thinking about existing structures. You see something that you haven't seen before. It's a new structural system. It's different damage mechanism or a different way that you know some other engineer detailed something. And you look at it and you say, wow, that was really, really clever or that didn't work at all. And it's that you know kind of opportunity to look at something, study it for a while, and then step back and say, okay, we can make this better. We can recognize that this is really cool and it worked. Or we can say, okay, this is bad enough that I think, well, we can really got to step back and think about maybe what kind of code changes are necessary to address this condition. So it's all of those areas. And I guess the other piece about it, I've been super blessed over the last 30 years to work with some really cool people. I've had some great mentors in this area. Randy Poston, Dan McCarthy, couple really good engineers, some well-known guys at ACI, Larry Kahn. It's just the opportunity to work with some really nice people and it still do have really great coworkers that I have a lot of fun working with. And you know, at the end of the day, a lot of the stuff we do, it's very much, yeah, okay, it's technical, but it is about people. And if you find a group of people that you like working with, it makes everything you're doing much more fun. So I think that's kind of the stuff that excites me about structural engineering. Maybe I'm not excited about structural engineering so much as existing, you know, structures and you know, working with people. You gotta have, find things that are fun with your job. That delves into the passion portion of our professions. I mean, I always say if if you're not passionate about it, you're just gonna drag your knuckles, you know, with your work. And that has a intrinsic effect on how your work gets done, how your project gets executed, how your team structure is going to be, your team's morale. One thing I'm really excited about, not even just structural engineering, but engineering in, in general, is when I see the past methods of best management practices. I'm excited when I see, okay, like this is what we did back in, like you were saying, like the 30s or the 40s or the 50s. And this is like the technology that we had at this point in time. And this is how it 
this implementation of this technology affects us now in 2022 or 2023, whatever the year may be. And we are seeing now that that did not work. There's now something that's better. And that's something that really interests me a lot with the repair and rehabilitation aspect of engineering. You know, like, I don't think that there's a a ton of people that are really interested or in our field specifically, but it's so interesting to me because I like to take something from nothing and then turn it into something. I just love to see like how new technology gets implemented. Like even back when I was working, you know, doing public works, it was just very interesting to see like, okay, well, this is the type of storm pipe that we used to, this was the standard at this point in time. This is the limits of what our human brains could even fathom at this point. But now we're seeing that this is not actually good, you know, like IE using lead piping. And now we're starting to see lead or asbestos piping. And now we're seeing that that's something that's not good. So now we have to repair it. And then there's just a huge downfall that comes with that. The asset management planning, the project management that comes with that, the cost management, just coming up with the whole entire plan to really revolutionize your whole entire city's infrastructure. That really fascinates me a lot. You touch on some of the really big questions as to how do you make and go about major changes in a, you're talking about a city infrastructure, you know, whether it's critical infrastructure, how do you do it while keeping it in service? And that's really like so many of these bigger projects that we have, the cost isn't the actual materials. It's not the engineering. It's this amount of time engineering it to keeping it in service. You know, I was just reading something, Amtrak is planning on retrofitting a couple of bridges in the state of Connecticut. They're up on two projects that are on a billion plus dollar budgets planned out. I mean, there are a hundred year old lift span bridges that need to be replaced, but it's rail track. What can't you easily jog around like you can with a car, a train? So you got to keep that bridge in service while you're replacing it with something new. That's really complicated and that's really challenging. And there's a lot of limitations to all that. And those are some of the toughest projects that you're going to get. And to some extent, they're also some of the hardest projects because no matter what, it's not so much on a rail project, but if you think about think this on a roadway, nobody wants to be in a traffic jam because of repair construction. That's, I think, from a public planning perspective, a politician wants to be there at the ribbon cutting for the brand new structure, but they're not necessarily planning to show up at the start of a five-year traffic jam. That's kind of a different world. But those are the things that we really need to focus on to keep all this stuff in, in good service and keep things safe. I just wanted to ask, like, if there's any final piece of advice that you would give to engineers that are involved in repair and rehabilitation projects, like what advice would you give them either if they're just starting their career or if they're already in the career right now and well-versed, maybe 10 years of experience or so, what advice would you give them on either how to start or how to maintain and how to grow? One is to find some really good mentors, you know, whether it's in your field or, or associated with your field. You know, I've been lucky. I mentioned Randy Poston, but, you know, Sarah Billington, Mary Sanchelani, my graduate school advisors, Ken Holber. Those are all people that if I had a question or uncertain about something, I could always feel like I could reach out to them and they'd be able to help me. And that's been super helpful. Some of the different professional organizations like ACI, ICRI, ASCE, they're all super helpful for people as a, you know, just as a source of where you can learn more stuff and you can 
get involved and develop that, you know, sort of professional network so that when you come across problems, you can kind of have some other people to reach out to that are your peers and see, you know, kind of get a perspective as what's going on in, in different aspects of the industry or different parts of the country and the network of, I'm a design professional. I can reach out to some people that I know that are contractors at ACI in different parts of the country. Projects come up and say, oh, do you know somebody that's in, that can do this? And that's, I've always found to be very helpful. Plus, really focused, you know, we, as engineers, a lot of states are requiring PH credits, but that sort of commitment to figuring out a way to keep learning stuff. I was giving a seminar a couple of years back at University of Connecticut, and somebody asked me a question about how what I learned in school is, is being used in my day-to-day profession. And it was, I kind of thought about it for a second, and it's kind of like a 90-10 rule. It was what I came up with. And I said, you know, on any given day, you may have to use 10% of what you learned in school, but you never know which 10% that's going to be. And at some point, you're going to be using all of that stuff that you learned in school, but you don't know what you're going to need to have on some day. And then the other half of that is there's an awful lot of stuff that you got to learn on the job. So you got to figure out a way to keep learning stuff. Just came to my mind is just working out your engineering muscle. And what I consider that to be is like, you know, you have to train yourself outside of your job, outside of your workplace. As you said, networking is extremely important because you learn so much from going to those ASCE meetings and conferences. So, you know, get involved with the young members group, get involved with just the state or city branch or chapter that, you know, you have local to you in order for you to, you know, really learn network and getting to know different people, asking the hard questions that you need to ask. So I really appreciate that information that you've given. We're going to take a quick break here. And when we get back, we're going to be talking to Keith about the PM pitfall segment and what he sees as one of the biggest PM pitfalls in his industry right now. Stay tuned. All right, everyone, we are back with the Engineering Project Management Podcast, and we have Keith Kessner here. Right now, we're going to be going into our PM pitfalls segment. So, Keith, we wanted to ask you, what is the largest PM pitfall that you see in your industry right now, and how do you advise for project managers or aspiring project managers to get through those PM pitfalls? Not taking the time to really understand what your client wants from a project. And when we're working on existing structures, especially repair projects, there's a lot of options available. All of those options, different costs, different service lives. And I think it takes a lot of effort. And your client may not know the answer to this question, but what is your client really looking for on the project? And what sort of like expected service life one are they thinking about? And let me kind of give you an example. I was 20 plus years ago, I was working on a project. We're finishing a parking structure repair project. And it was very invasive, a lot of night work. And at the end, we recognized we wanted to do something, some sort of a coating, membrane type coating on it. And the owner, he said to us, how long do you think that's going to last? And we said, well, we think it's going to have, well, we'll get a five-year warranty. That was pretty standard. And basically the owner, he told us pretty much, 
that was not a five-year warranty where maybe you're going to be back in five years wasn't that good. That's not what he wanted. He did not want to see something. He wanted something with a longer service life. And he said, I could have gotten a five-year warranty and had any engineer come up with that. I wanted you guys involved because I wanted something more thought through, something with a longer service life. So really go back to our drawing boards and come up with a different solution. It caused some problems at the time, but if we had thought about it a little bit more and really worked in and understood it, what he was looking for and the fact that he wanted a much longer service life repair program and a final capstone on it, that would have saved us a lot of heartache. The pitfall is when you get into these projects where there are a lot of options, figure out exactly what your client is looking for or really take the effort to explain the implications of all these options are. And that's really going to help get the most value for your client. And that's really at the end of the day, what we really need to do is get our clients the best value. So I hope that's something that people, when they think about, can try and avoid in the future and not have some unsatisfied clients at the end of a job. Right. At the end of our projects, we want our client to be satisfied, right? We want them to not only be satisfied, but to keep on coming back more. We want to continuously keep on feeding a pipeline of projects that are coming now and in the future to keep our businesses thriving. So I really appreciate that advice. And I appreciate you coming on to the podcast today. Thank you for sharing some information with us about repair and rehabilitation. It's something that we really haven't dived into too much on this channel, but I'm glad that now we have that perspective of how that is done, not just from my side, not just from the local municipality side, but also on the commercial and residential side, as you've stated, on some bigger, bigger projects. So we really appreciate you coming on to the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Please remember that you can find the show notes for this episode at www.engineeringpmpodcast.com. And there you'll find a summary of the key points that we discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, the websites, or the books that we mentioned in today's episode as well. Until next time, I wish you all the very, very best in your project management endeavors. Take care.